Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University's Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Dublin, Ohio. And in today's episode, which we're recording remotely on the 26th of April of 2021, I'm joined by two visual artists, artistic curators and community organizers. Kat Sheridan uses many different media in her artistic work with a special focus on ceramics. Kat is also director of the Ohio Arts Council's Rife Gallery, which is based in downtown Columbus, the city where she lives. Gabriel Amza is a Romanian photographer, curator, and community organizer. He specializes in long-term documentary projects and installations, often on themes of social justice and the environment. Gabriel lives in Timisoara, Romania. Kat and Gabriel, hello and welcome. Hello. Good to be here. Both of you are quite hard to put into a, a thumbnail portrait. You both do quite a lot of different things. And I wondered if you could just give me kind of like an elevated talk about yourself and your work. Gabriel, do you want to take that one first? I think a bit of background is in order just for context. Uh, when I was a small child, I decided to start writing. Uh, when I got to college, writing became a bore because the academic context of it proved <laughs> insufficient for my curiosity and needs and excitement. Uh, I switched to photography. And I realized I actually see the world and understand it in a visual way. So everything sort of sprung from there. For me, it's really confusing to understand the systems that make the world happen around me. And my art is really a way for me to process how I think about things so I can better understand, you know, how I relate to them. When I talk about empathy it's also very relevant because art is i find an excellent way to understand other people's point of view as well and i think that's lacking generally in uh i don't know how we educate our kids and our humans so yeah cat <laughs> yeah no that makes perfect sense to me you said something that really resonates which is your curiosity drives the way in which you pursue artistic endeavor. And I think that we both share that. I have trouble being confined to a specific modality. I am uninterested in fitting into expectations because I firmly believe that we contain multitudes, each and every single one of us. So to try and explicitly state that one must be within this box or this box, I naturally push against that. And my curiosity also pulls me in so many different directions. I really enjoy novelty. I think about it kind of in the way of like, once you learn to do hyper-realism, it's a skill that you've developed and you have achieved that. So now what? Yeah, it's a language. Exactly. That's, that's all it is. It's not anything you've written in that language. Right. So to speak in that language always in just that particular sentence, for example, hyperrealism is not of interest to me. 
I want to learn that language and then I want to expand my vocabulary and speak with more words. I fully understand that. I have that too. To define yourself based on your materials or your aesthetics as an artist, I also really rail against it. It's such an unpleasant thing to have to put yourself in a box when you explain about who you Mm -hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Some things are documentary photography, other things are conceptual photography. I think all art is documentary in nature because it explains something about human existence to other humans. And so I don't have hesitations to put the documentary tag on, you know, artistic anything. So rather annoyingly, despite the fact you both just <laughs> told me that you don't want to be limited in any way, I'm going to ask you just if you could describe for our listeners perhaps one work that you've created that you're particularly proud of, and then they can look at all the other stuff you've done on your websites later, or you can talk about it later in different contexts. But just to get a sense of something that you've done, that would be wonderful. Gabriel? I'll give you one. It's a documentary project. I'm still working on it as my master's thesis. is called Genius uh, Lochi or Lochi. It documents a mining area in Romania, the Jiu Valley, just as the last mines are closing. And the work itself is a couple of years of documenting the community and its environment and how these things evolve. It's really poetic. I think of it as documentary work, though people have told me it's a bit too artsy for that purpose. And uh, yeah, it's still 20 more years to go documenting it because turns out when you start documenting the spirit of the place, it's not so easily defined due to its uh, wily nature. Of course. Kat, what about you? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, let's see here. So I paint, I draw, I do ceramics, I take photos. One that I felt may resonate well within this conversation is an ongoing project documenting my age. I started a decade ago on my birthday, documenting in the same space in my home, just a portrait of myself. And so every year I share each portrait and I try and pose myself so that I have the same, you know, relative position. And it's so interesting to engage a conversation with folks about what it means to change Uh, what doesn't change, and noting the tender differences. These are photos. So that, I feel, probably resonates well with Gabriel's work of this, you know, long-term documentary. And my intention is to do it for the rest of my life. And how exciting to have the journey of my crow's feet and my laugh lines and my white hair as they become more present to tell the story of how hard did I laugh and, you know, what experiences or what genetically predisposes me to how my face shapes and renders through the year and maybe help others to see that there's beauty in that too. When is your birthday? February 9th. (laughs) So this February 9th, did you look particularly haggard and strained after a year of COVID? (laughs) You know, um, my hair was certainly tousled. Maybe I have a little more cheeks because <laughs> I've eaten well, but uh, not much more than that, no. Huh? Okay. 
Gosh, I'd be interested to know what my own portrait would be like. I feel like I've aged exponentially. Start now. Oh, gosh, no. Life's already too real. (laughs) Oh, see, that's the piece that I think is most interesting because most people say that. And then you get to have the conversation of help me understand why you wouldn't want to see yourself and those that love you. I think about it in a way as being giving. Because I I think about images of my family members and loved ones and how much joy it gives me to be able to see their progression in life. So it's not just for me, it's to empower others to see their own beauty, as well as to help solidify that for myself, because I think it's a journey for everyone. Heck of a journey. Right. Well, actually, we're speaking of February this year, but going back to February last year, or January, February last year. I'll come back to you, Kat, first. What were you doing in terms of your artistic and curatorial and community life related to art in the months just before COVID? I'm asking you this because I want to see how it changed after COVID struck. Just before the turn of the year, my partner and I had an exhibition called Two Piece, which celebrated community members that are artists and change makers. You know, I find that artists tend to create community and are shepherds of shift. So we wanted to celebrate that. And we selected, who was eight people to highlight, and both of us did a portrait of them. That was in November. And then I typically go through these kind of roller coasters of very, very prolific. And then you have an exhibition. And then so far as my personal creative endeavors, I have kind of a fallow period. I let rest and then I sow seeds through research and all that kind of good stuff. So in February, January, February, I was still in my fallow period. We shut down the gallery with the health orders and we have had this really fabulous exhibition called Ohio Diaspora which was centered on the work of African-American or folks um, related to the diaspora from Africa. It was along with the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center here in Ohio. Uh, We partnered with them and just this really phenomenal exhibition opened at the end of January. So I was really putting all of my focus into making sure that uh, we were amplifying these artists' voices, that we were telling a story that went beyond your Black History Month timeline. And then, you know, (laughs) the exhibition was to come down in April and uh, really it got shut down early March. So my entire focus went to pivoting on how can I extend this? How can I make sure that I'm giving authentic and robust attention to these artists? I had all these artist talks set up and it was a lot of uh, SWOT analysis of like, what can I do and how can I safely do things? Everything for my personal creativity also took a hard stop. I am a very community-oriented person. I have a very tight network of friends. I am very close with my family. I have two elderly parents who are very ornery, and I am the youngest and live the closest and don't have children. So when the orders to stay at home, shelter at home came through, I took it upon myself to essentially try and shield them as best I could from 
their ornery selves. <laughs> you know, I, I shopped for them. So really all of my energy pivoted towards super intense care. And that also fed into, um, I needed something that really buoyed me or anchored me. No, buoy, it feels right because there were ups and downs, you know. I started a sourdough <laughs> starter as of March 18th in 2020. I, I did it at the very beginning. I was like, you know what? I'm a great cook, but I never bake. So because I have this time at home where something like baking that takes measured time and almost this sciencey approach, I felt like that was an opening. And it felt also like something very methodical and ritualistic that I could kind of set my fussiness into and find balance, but also care for the people that I love. Like I can't be with you, but I can bake something really delicious and give it to you and you can taste all my love. Did you have to get like a little bit of starter from a, a local bakery or how do you start a sourdough? It happens naturally. You put flour and water together and then you let it ferment and it gets real nasty and stinky. And then you know that it's time for it to be fed. And then you get it to this place where the natural bacteria allow for it to ferment within itself. So it's kind of like yeast. It's the old time yeast. And it can't be that different to working with ceramics in a way. Or, or, or am I being too fanciful? No, I think that you are absolutely right in that it is process heavy. And there is a wide margin of error. So ceramics is pretty unforgiving and baking can be pretty unforgiving. And I guess I'm a glutton for punishment in that regard. And that I just keep going back to these things because when it turns out right, it's such a joy. Tell us one of your finest baking achievements in the last year. Oh. I'm sorry, I'm going to limit you to one again. <laughs> Let's see. So after I had learned to do these loaves with additions that I had recipes for. I made what I called a kind of celebration bread and created my own additions, which had tart cherries and apricots and these really fancy almonds and herbs de Provence and a little bit of coriander. That just this lovely balance between the sourdough and this sweetness and tartness that's truly, it's just like fireworks in your mouth. This conversation is making me feel so me hungry. Too. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing that I did with those is that I had created these proving bowls out of ceramics. So having that celebration bread in a proving bowl of my own design and just having these super over-the-top fancy <laughs> textures on it, it, it truly was a celebration for the eyes, for the mouth. And I believe that if you put intention into your cooking and, and a lot of love into it that folks feel that on the other end. 100%. Yeah. Wow, that's a beautiful story. Gabriel, what about you? For me, 2020 started uh, artistically with, uh, we had a show in Stuttgart in Germany. Me and my partner, Andrea, I think this was January. Homing was the name of the show. It's about people's relationship to home in a brief history about this is that millions of Romanians and East Europeans 
travel abroad in Western Europe to work because the pay is better. And in rural areas, it's very hard to find uh, employment that offers a living wage. Because of this, there's this whole phenomenon of migration. This is like an ongoing issue sociologically that is still being studied and we'll see the consequences in time. For us, it was about our relationship with home and how Romanians feel about it. Uh, it was a complex, complex show here in Timisoara and then in Stuttgart. Stuttgart was the one uh, in January. Where we went there, we had an artistic theater performance by a colleague, Emma, and my partner, Andrea. They did a theater piece. I uh, showed photographs. It was a, a really great show at Literaturhaus Stuttgart. The one in Timisoara regarding cooking actually also featured uh, my mom's dishes. <laughs> and we just straight up uh, called her a uh, installation. <laughs> uh, the, her work was labeled as like a site-specific interactive installation because you could eat the food. And that, that was the artistic concept behind it. Because what else says home as well as like a mom's cooking? Amen. So that happened. We got COVID and our whole team was sick when they got home, each in their individual things. And yeah, it felt weird and we didn't know what was going was on. Was it diagnosed as COVID? I mean, did you know what it was? No, or you just... I don't think we even could have right. back That's then. Very, Yeah, that was very early in it. But... Yeah, this is only hypothetical. Uh, maybe we all just had like a weird cold for, for a couple of weeks. Then I went back to my corporation job. I worked for an IT startup. It pays the bills. I, I wasn't in a great artistic voyage generally in life, but COVID put a stop to the whole thing. We got like massive instant lockdown. The night before lockdown, we went and uh, adopted dogs from a shelter and they were our partners of sanity throughout the COVID ordeal. And it was a really interesting process. The, the thing I think is worth mentioning is that we don't really have time anymore to spend with ourselves without external stimulus and external information that we can just consume. Uh, what was really interesting for us was how that ceased because um, you would follow all the information you could online, you would talk on, your, on the phone with your family. Uh, we live close to both our families, we're in the same town but we didn't see them at the beginning of COVID for the longest of time. And because of that empty space of social interaction and uh, the lack of so much external stimulus, I think these questions developed on the inside of people, such as uh, yours, like how to express love without being close to your loved ones. So th that's the moment where artistically it's a space where a lot of stuff can happen because it's huge emotions and it's a lot of stuff to work through even intellectually as well so then to find this way to do it and you had sourdough i actually started making hot sauce <laughs> nice <So it's> still <laughs> fermented <laughs> because fermentation is this fantastic thing because it's alive it's not a creation that you get to make it's it's a cooperation with a different organism yes to take up fermentation in the times when a virus is ravaging your community is this weird sort of peace offering to that microcosm of nature right absolutely 
it's all uh, symbolism, but I think it's fantastic to analyze people's decisions like that. The first batch was uh, ghost pepper jalapeno with uh, anise and bitter orange. Oh, wow. And it was called Suicide Pact. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds about right. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right. It was this weird desire for tastes I couldn't find commercially and as well trying to introduce people to a new experience because I I kept giving them to people and people were afraid to try the jar labeled Suicide Pact. (laughs) Yeah, that does seem kind of dark (laughs) at a dark time. Yeah, it's a dark time. I I think there's no need to shy away from it in that sense. I would be so into it. I that would have been all over everything I was eating. Oh good. Absolutely. I would have I would have gone for the pact for sure. <laughs> I will try and send you one. <laughs> and didn't you tell me when we were chatting briefly earlier that you were also working on your house? Yeah, that started the moment the lockdown hit because how does one feel fill time around the house that's decaying around you is to start fixing it up. In the last years, ever since we moved here, we actually were too busy fixing up a space to have a gallery or fixing up another space to have a show in. And we did a lot of building work, but none of it on our own house. And last year we decided to start seriously taking our house into a place we want it to be. It developed into a project for me and Andrea, uh, which we started calling Gloria Domestica. And it was about appreciating the glory and the beauty within our own small environment, accepting that we can limit the audience to works, uh, that we put a lot of time and effort in, in to our close friends and, you know, like it's COVID, so there's not a lot of people coming here to enjoy what we've done. We live in a hundred year old farmer's homestead that's basically two rooms and a kitchen and a bathroom. It's made out of uh, adobe with some brick and it really needed a lot of love. We have original tilings uh, on the porch, which were decrepit, weeds were growing everywhere. We tried to convince architects to look at the house through Zoom and tell us how we need to do things. We couldn't find anyone to help because of COVID firstly, and secondly, because of the old way in which you have to work with this house using old materials. Eventually we got the manuals, uh, actually the uh, natives of the Mexico region and their skills props. Those are the best data sets for adobe work that i have found on the internet it's amazing and astounding they don't call them mexican for nothing oh yeah uh-huh. so i'm really struck by the parallels in your experiences so cat you were creating these amazing bowls and these this fermented sourdough bread and gabriel you were creating this fermented hot sauce and then build you know renovating this house and you both spoke about the love and the ways to show love to your immediate friends. I wasn't aware that there were so many parallels in your work before I set up this conversation, actually. It's great. It's really convenient. I think what I found really kind of compelling hearing you, Gabriel, talk about the interest in shifting the attention on your home is this idea that it is a shift. Outside of pandemic times, we have this persistent attention to 
how we are in space with others and how we curate a space for others. And so the idea of recentering a space with the idea of creating something that is really and truly about and for you and your partner is so gorgeous to to think about that rather than, oh, I have to ready the house for guests. Right. You're readying the house for yourself. That's gorgeous. I love it. I think it was a great thing. Uh, I don't think there's any realistic way to live in pandemic times outside of accepting that you have new boundaries for your existence. Then as artists and creators, we have to, I don't know, and have to is like a strong word. Maybe it's nice to have a dialogue with the space and to change it to the worldview you would like to see. I think artists will always do this. Maybe your experience is similar as well, Kat, with their own spaces, because you have to live with art. You have to live in a space that is conductive to the thought process of developing your work. In my experience, it's almost never cleanliness and like ordered rows of Ikea vases. For me, it has to be hectic and crazy. And there is all these parts of projects and half finished thoughts. I surround myself with like a crazy hoarder in my own brain. How is yours? 100%. I, because I'm, you know, deeply involved in the community of arts, I also am deeply invested in the idea of supporting the arts. And the best way that I know how to do that is by helping someone know how much of value there are through purchasing it, you know? Oh, so many people need to do that more. Yeah. So my partner and I have a robust collection of artwork and it's one of those homes that there is very little space on the wall. It is chock full of meaning and history. It's almost like a bookmark of sorts. If someone is particularly interested in any work, I can share with them, you know, when and where and who and why. And there's a richness to that. And I agree, most artists have homes in this way. There's this idea of minimalism that sounds lovely, but I would have zero interest in living in. Like this idea of purging and this kind of trend of removing, I, I see as precisely that as a trend. You know, I have items that I've inherited from my grandparents and parents that have intense emotional bonds because of the sepia-toned memories that I have. Yeah, exactly. It's not just the pieces of art. How do you build meaning? It again comes right back to communication. Like how, how do you communicate with past and, and present? How do you communicate uh, joy through what you surround yourself with? And then hopefully you then push that warmth and that goodness into other people's memories and ties to surroundings. Exactly. When objects are loaded with patina and memory in them, it's yeah it's totally a fad the purging of stuff and minimalism i'm sure is great for some people but it feels like abandoning a part of the journey that got you to a certain place 
I think of how many homesteads actually lost their multi-generational heritage in in this very very rustic, uh, hands-on, haptic sort of way in, in this purge. And I think the moment you end up having to fill that void with your presence only in a time like COVID when you're stuck a year inside in that empty spot, it must be really dark because in, in a way you're, you're tearing out your own roots doing that, trying to develop space, of course, to grow further. But there's no guarantee there's a lot of growth going to happen in that space or that it's going to be yours. The future is th this crazy sort of place. Predicting it is sketchy at best. And the past allows a mirror to it where you can kind of see through it. For example, in our space here in Timisoara and in Romania, uh, we've had the plague, right? <laughs> or several, and like the Carpathian Mountains were actually a quarantine space between the Turks and the Austro-Hungarian Empire for tens and tens and hundreds of years. So if you wanted to cross the mountains, it was like a 40-day quarantine to see if you're going to die or not. And I feel like there's a parallel I'm trying to make, but I can't quite put my words properly into the spot between this relationship with environment which for me is really, really has become so important. There's story there. There's story. Like there's story in, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about things handed down that would seem inconsequential to so many. Like there is a spoon in my kitchen that came from my grandmother that I remember her. And there is nothing that works the same way as that spoon that handles the same way. It does not exist in the marketplace anymore, but there's a history to it. There's a handling, there's a patina of life to it. So to remove that from function within my world, then eventually loses that memory, which is very similar to like, how do you, how do you maintain the memory of the Carpathian mountains being a quarantine space, unless you have someone that has some sort of documentation of that. And to live in a purged space does not allow for memory. I love listening to this. And I'm kind of, in a way, I feel envious of you both living in your home places. But I want to move on a little now to ask, have you managed to think about new artistic projects during this time, either for yourself or in terms of community organizing in the various ways that you do that? Gabriel, let me put that to you first. Yeah. Actually, during this pandemic, I became part of a new cycling NGO to lobby for green infrastructure for bikes in my town and my community. We're working on projects to educate both cyclists to be safer, authorities to take care of them, and motorists to not murder them with their heavy cars. And I actually have my first portrait project documenting cyclists in Timisoara, portraits of them as they are when they're cycling. The goal is to humanize them in the eyes of motorists and make them like a more visible part of society. Isn't that wild that you have to humanize a human on a bike for someone in a car? It's how we build borders around ourselves, isn't it? Yeah. So like as artists, we find the borders, we tear them down, like we keep tearing them down until 
they're over or understood anew yeah this this thing is an issue i don't in the states i'm sure it's different oh no no motorists have really unbalanced rage at bicyclists uh, i've been reading up on the psychology of that and it has to do with that boundary of Uh, being in your space that you own and being able to move it anywhere. So the infrastructure is like an extension of the road infrastructure for motorists becomes like a psychological extension of yourself. I think this is a design issue when we're talking about art. I, I like product design is really interesting that way because inherently cars are designed to be sold because they feel safe and powerful, which are directly opposites of anything you want most people to feel when they look at the work of art, unless you're dealing with people who are victims or who are victimized in society. At least for me, I never really... Like, cis white males aren't supposed to feel glad about themselves and their place in society when they look at my art. <laughs> so then it becomes a design issue because what in a car creates that aura, right? So in the sense of finding art in everything and everything is documentary, how can we create art that shows people who have privilege what it's like to have it taken away and motorists also count for me as privileged at least in romania uh, uh currently it's a portrait series to humanize and we'll see where we go from there i'd love like actually cat if you want i would love it if we could like somehow make a, a car designed to reduce your privilege while you drive it and we can maybe do it out of porcelain i am intrigued <laughs> Because it's a fantastic medium for that because of its inherent frailty, right? You know, there are so many parallels that it's nuts. As a child, I worried so much about car accidents. And I would essentially go to bed trying to invent ways that we could reduce harm. And I thought I had the solution that we could build cars out of sponges. That way, if you bumped into someone no one really got hurt there is something to be said about using like a sponge on the outside of a car like yeah i was thinking differently i i also have been thinking about this for years my idea is the steering wheel spike which is a large spike in the middle of the steering wheel for the driver to look at oh wow <laughs> as they drive that would give you unease for sure exactly but inherently that's more of what you want on the road because everyone else gets to feel unease you know pedestrians feel unease like cyclists feel unease motorists have somehow managed to purchase the luxury of a feeling of safety yeah which no one else gets Well, I look forward to seeing the ceramic car with the spike and various and various sponges. kind of like sponges. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the iteration. But Kat, what about you? So I talked a little bit at the front end about the stages of my artistic practice. So this fallow period has transitioned into research and development for me. And a lot of what I've been focusing my attention on is thinking. So researching how we think. 
again, the parallels are wild. I have been listening to books, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman is one of them. And then right now I'm listening to Think Again by Adam Grant. And it's just these really in-depth ways of exploring the idea of how we ingest information, make judgments, and then decisions that affect others that turn the cycle over and over and over again. So how then can I communicate that? And so I'm trying to turn the idea of a product on end, and I'm trying to think about how can I make this a way of being that has a ripple effect beyond anything that one item could have. And do you think your thinking about thinking has been informed by the pandemic? Heck yes. (laughs) By having time to think, 100%. Gabriel, does that resonate with you at all? I felt like as you were talking that this idea of modes of thinking and how people, like when you were talking about motorists, and engaging and understanding how we come to that place of understanding and then existing in the world, it felt like such a parallel to me. Yeah, yeah. And how we arrive at a state of mind, right? Yeah. Yeah. The thing is that after a year spent indoors, basically, I've somehow decided, at least like, you know, for my own inner world, that a lot of our thoughts, actions, and situations are by design of different parts of society, right? The world inherently as it is, is a complex system of interactions and materials with with which we create things to better our existence. And better is like a really loose term here because I've kind of come to the conclusion that the whole of modern society is a fucking scam due to consumerism, basically that the market economy becomes such a relevant aspect of each part of our thought process. I'm trying to become more aware in how this affects my interactions, because in the last year, I've been able to notice that my attention span has been limited by how I interact with electronical objects and Facebook, and that I don't have patience to sit and read anymore. The thing about being stuck in the house is that the world isn't waiting for you to go outside if you have community or uh, civic work to do or lobbying or protesting or injustice to fight, right? But we have engineered ways where you can do this from your home, though they involve sacrifice of your attention span, sacrifice of your profile, which can then be used against you in many ways. You know, every internet lobbyist has like a a really well-built psychological profile on Facebook or Instagram with which they are being sold things. So there's this, this whole layer of consumerism to all our interactions, whether we want it or not, and it's not within our control. I don't know if this is relevant, but it feels relevant to me that these are somehow connected because... Everything is documentary. Everything is art. You know, coherently created human experiences are obviously art. So thus, so is Facebook and its ability to help us communicate and enact social change, which is the the bright side of it. But beyond this, there is this underbelly of shift that can alter the way we think in the long term, uh, as 
has been documented and reported by other people. It's interesting in being an artist in these times or a supporter of the arts because there's a inherently transactional nature to that that I think we would like to imagine doesn't exist but still exists. So being in a pandemic where your in-person feel, touch, hear, smell is removed, then your only piece of interaction that you can have is either with whom you live or through perhaps unsafe measures if you choose to go that route or through a internet which has myriad screens. What I think about artists and I love about artists the most is that we are inherently problem solvers. You place in our path a pandemic that renders us nearly communityless, with the exception of being online, and places directly in front of us issues of oppression that can't be ignored by your standard social outings because those no longer exist. You have this extraordinary time of introspection. And I think that it is allowed for the social unrest that exists today to reach a fever pitch of discontent that will allow for change. And I do place this squarely on the shoulder of artists and creatives as far as folks that will get it done and are getting it done and doing it in such a way that it will be remembered. So if you lean into it, there's this extraordinary opportunity to invest in a new outlook and solve new problems. And that's been incredible. I felt like I've been able to lean into that really well for my arts administration. Like, how do I add value to those that are trying to experience the arts but can't in person? And I will take those lessons forward with me. And so I think about what Gabriel has been talking about and his shifts and his thinking And I won't put words in his mouth, but it feels like it rings true there as well. Gabriel, any final thoughts? I really agree with Kat. Art is inherently a vehicle for social change. As artists, we are the human experience in a distilled form, or artists can be this. Art has this annoying, annoying aspect of being for art consumers and art lovers. Because they're the ones that go to shows. And it's limited geographically. From that point, we were forced to shift. We had to find ways to get to new audiences. And I love this idea of art for the masses in a way that anyone should be able to experience. Because if you're in an art-starved region and you're an art-starved person that feels the need for art in your life, it can be annoyingly difficult. And we each of us got a slice of that for COVID. It it, it feels like living in a town where nothing happens, ever. (laughs) But it sounds like you're also saying there was an optimism that came out of it because everything went online and that's accessible to many more people. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. All art done in COVID is amazingly well documented. We got to see a show from the Paris Opera featuring like four dance troupes 
and the price must have been something like a thousand dollars for a seat <laughs> so there's no chance in hell we would have ever gotten to see that play otherwise and all of a sudden everyone can see it it's this fantastic equalitarian way art has evolved a apart from the intimacy and the intimate moments we each have had as a consequence of this time it democratizes the ability to access and there's something incredibly beautiful about that silver lining i love it that you've both highlighted somewhat optimistic aspects of the function and the creation and the dissemination of art during this pandemic time. So I really want to thank you both so much, Kat Sheridan and Gabriel Amza, for coming on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. A delight. And you can find out more about both of my guests in the notes which accompanied this episode. COVID Conversations Life in a Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. A great many people have been instrumental in making this series happen, too many to name here, but I would like to express special thanks to Christina Benedetti, Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Patterson, Nick Spitulski, and Jasper Ward-Quaysbath. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you for listening.